So Genesis 33, as we continue our series in this first book of the Bible. If you remember, um, just briefly to introduce this chapter, Jacob and his twin brother Esau have been at serious odds with one another. Jacob has deceived Esau on more than one occasion. Esau now hates Jacob and is seeking to take his life. So Jacob flees and goes to the home of his mother or the country, the land of his mother, Rebekah, to find a wife. He ends up with two wives and a couple of concubines and a bunch of children, and it's a complete mess. And at some point, he is serving um, his wife's father, Laban, who has tricked him, and he decides it's time to return home. The Lord has spoken to him and said, you need to go back to the promised land with your wives and your children, and he journeys home. On the journey home, he's confronted with the reality that he's going to face Esau, his brother, who he knows wants to kill him. And he has no small amount of fear about that. Yet, Jacob fears the Lord, and so he goes forward. And today we come to the passage where he arrives right at the edge of the land and is confronted by his brother Esau. So let's look at that passage together. Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph Last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob answered, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us, go on, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. 
But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Alejo Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come before you, as we hear the word of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, as he speaks by his spirit and through his word, through his humble servant, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that your spirit would be at work so that we understand your word, that we rejoice in it. Not only that we understand it intellectually, but that we love your word and walk in repentance before you, that we are affected in our hearts by you as our God, the gracious, merciful, kind God who brings reconciliation between these two brothers, who brings reconciliation between us and yourself in the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be transformed by your Spirit. We know that the word of the Lord does not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which it's set forth. And so we trust you as we come to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said at the beginning this morning, we come to the point in the Jacob story where Jacob finally faces Esau, his brother, his brother whom he's defrauded and sinned against. And in our passage today, He is returning to his homeland with his whole family, both wives, both concubines, and all their children to face his brother Esau. He is returning, Jacob is coming home as a man who by God's grace now trusts in the Lord, who fears God more than man. It isn't that Jacob has no fear of man, it is that Jacob is able to continue to move forward as one who fears God more than he fears man. And as Jacob returns, I want us to consider this passage really under three headings. First, I want us to consider this passage under the heading of the fearful and repentant man. We're really looking at Genesis 33, 1 through 3, and then we'll we'll carry on from there. But the fearful and repentant man. And second, I want us to consider the gracious and merciful God. So the fearful and repentant man, the gracious and merciful God... And then what I want to do is give you three applications for the Christian. So three things that I want to apply to you. So let's talk first about the fearful and repentant man. Look at Genesis 32 and verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. I want you to remember the scene that's just happened. Jacob has stacked his family 
um, in groupings. You can see that, verse, the rest of this verse. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So he's divided up his family as he's coming to meet his brother Esau, and what's just happened before this is that he took his family across the river Jabbok. He left them there. He came back over the river, and he wrestled with the man all night. The man happened to be God. And he trusts in the Lord, and the Lord changes his name from Jacob, the one who jerks at the heel, the one who is the usurper, who, if you will, the one who takes God's blessing in his own power, in his own manner. He changes his name to Israel. Israel meaning God fights for you. You can stop Jacob trying to fight these battles yourself and get what you want on your own, and you can begin to trust that God will fight for you. And so he has this interaction with the Lord, and then it says, the morning has come, and the first thing we read is Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. Now you imagine Jacob must be afraid. Jacob is afraid. He's concerned for the safety of his wife and children. Now, I want you to understand the context of his fear, though. At the beginning of Genesis 32, the angels come and meet Jacob. At the end of Genesis 22, God comes and meets with Jacob and promises to fight for him. And in the midst of that chapter, Jacob confesses his faith, his trust in the Lord. So he trusts the Lord. Yet, he knows he's confronting a brother who hates him and wants to kill him, who's coming with 400 men. So if you look up and you see your brother coming forward, you know there's a little bit of trepidation, isn't there? And so here he comes, and he groups his family. It's interesting, scholars argue over why he groups them the way he does. We know that Rachel and Joseph are his favorites, and they're in the very back. Some scholars argue that the reason he groups them this way is is so that when Esau's army, if you will, are making their way through his family, slaughtering them, you know, Joseph and Rachel have the best chance of getting free. He loves the concubines with their children the least, then, then Leah and her children, um, and then Rachel and Joseph. Some scholars argue that's what's happening. Um, some argue that it's actually the proper um, order of presentation in the way you would honor or present your family. I don't know. And Moses doesn't bother to tell us. Doesn't bother to tell us. What's clear, what's clear is that he knows Esau is coming with a large group of friends. He knows it could be really bad, given how they left one another. That's clear. And he's afraid. Yet he's also repentant for his deceit against his brother. He knows he harmed his brother. So look at verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, seven is not just an incidental number. It's not like he thought, how many would be good? Seven. That sounds great. As opposed to four or eight. Why seven? Seven is this number of completeness, fullness. Understand it's in the context of the book of Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth 
in six days. On the seventh day, he had completed his work and he rested. This is the number of fullness. And what Jacob is doing is he's coming before Esau, recognizing his deceit against him, and he is bowing before him seven times, a kind of completeness of humility. He recognizes he deceives his brother and he wants to make amends. Here's what I'm contending. Jacob is fully repentant for a sin against his brother. Now here's the question. Is it possible, is it possible to both fear the Lord, in other words, to trust him, to be repentant over your sin, and yet still have human fears about, with regard to the one you've sinned against as you go to them to confess your sin and repent? It's possible. Yes. Um, not only is it possible, I think it's most of our lived experience, isn't it? I said that last week, Jacob, now called Israel, has turned a corner in his faith. He now humbly trusts the Lord. He knows the Lord will fight for him and deliver the promises. Yet here he is afraid of Esau. How can both realities be true? I mean, doesn't Jesus, for example, say, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear him who can cast your body and soul into hell. That's who you should fear. Doesn't he say that? Is it possible then to still fear God and yet retain fear for the other man? Is it possibly truly repentant for sinning against others and yet still have some trepidation when you face those whom you've sinned against? Not only is it possible, like I said, it's the lived experience of most of us. We fear the Lord and we walk forward in faith into that which is fearful, don't we? Fearing the Lord doesn't mean, above man, does not mean that you have no fear of man. We can imagine when martyrs were being burned at the stake that they, they had some fear, yet they feared God more than death. They feared the Lord and they walked forward into that which is fearful. And that's what Jacob is doing here. After being beaten for the faith, I want you to give this example of the apostles in Acts. After the apostles, Acts 4, were beaten for their belief in Christ and their profession of the Christ, the apostles come together after the beating, and you know what they ask God for? As they come together to the church, they pray for boldness. Boldness to continue preaching the gospel. Paul prays for a kind of boldness at Colossae, doesn't he? When he says, pray for me that, I, that I'll speak clearly as I ought to speak. Alan J. Thompson, who wrote a, a biblical theology of Luke and Acts, he says this, that, that boldness is clarity in the face of fear. Clarity in the face of fear. Listen, I know that if I'm afraid of you and what you'll think of me or you and what may happen to me, then it's very easy to become really mealy-mouthed, isn't it? To not say the whole truth, to not say what I really believe or think. So that's true in, the, in preaching the gospel as I, I sit before someone and I think this person doesn't know Christ. They are not saved and I need to tell them. And as I start to speak, I can feel the fear of their rejection coming. Y'all fear that? 
And it starts to become really easy to become unclear. And boldness is clarity in the face of that. I start to find ways to not say, yeah, you're going to go to hell, right? Nobody likes to hear that. I'm not thinking they're going to love me if I say that. So I find ways around those things, right? And the apostles are saying, hey, in spite of the beatings, in spite of the fact that we'll face prison, death, make us clear. Give us boldness. What they're saying is, naturally, they're afraid. And so they need God's supernatural grace to cause them to walk forward and speak. This is true, by the way, when we're confessing sin. We're going to get into this in a bit in a sermon, but listen, when you know the secrets of your own heart and life, you know potentially grave sin that you've participated in, and you start to feel the Spirit of God convicting your heart that you need to confess it, it can become really scary to tell people. What will they think? Will they reject me? Will they hate me? Will I ever have a relationship with these people again? It can be really scary to even admit it to yourself that it's true, to say the same thing about your own sin that God says about it, because it leaves you naked and exposed before God. And you know it, so you find ways to occlude it, to cover it, to pretend like it isn't so. That's the point I'm trying to get at is we don't cease having human fears because we fear the Lord. We walk forward in faith in light of those fears. We begin to fear God such that we move forward in faith. When a person commits adultery or is looking at pornography or is consistently lying, they're afraid to confess. They're afraid to call sin what it really is. You know, you, you hear 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess, the Greek there is homo legeo. Homo, same, legeo is to speak or to say. In other words, what he's saying is, if we say the same thing about our sins that God says about them, that's scary, friends. Our fear causes us not to call sin what it really is. It leads to obfuscation, to justifying, to hiding, or to blame shifting. We place fig leaves over our guilt and shame. We shift blame to others. Our culture has become so adept at this that we have constructed some of the most sophisticated fig leaves known in human history. I have a disease. I have a psychological disorder. I have bad parents. This is my identity. Just who I am. I can't help it. Anything we can do to avoid facing this reality, my heart is dark in ways that are abhorrent to me and that are abhorrent to God. But friends, we need to be those who confess our sins, who say the same thing about them that God says, and we need to confess our sins to those whom we've sinned against. First and foremost, above all, to God Psalm 51, and secondly, to the other party we sinned against, here, horizontally. Now, when you fear the Lord sufficiently to repent, in other words, when you fear the Lord sufficiently to repent, that does not mean you come to a meeting to confess your sin with no fears at all. 
In fact, you're often quite afraid, and we see that with Jacob here. He knows his sin against his brother has consequences, and he has some trepidation, but he presses forward in repentance. Further, Jacob shows, um, his repentance is shown in his offer of restitution. So look at Genesis 33, 4. We're just going to read through verse 10. We'll come back to verse 4 in a bit. 4 through 10. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. In other words, Jacob is bringing all kinds of animals and, and such as a gift with his family to give to Esau. Esau said, um, sorry, Jacob said to find favor in the sight of my Lord, verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight. In other words, if you, if you want to have grace upon me, if you're showing me grace, then what is he going to say? If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. It's interesting. Jacob's coming with an offer of restitution. He is stolen from his brother, and he, makes, he wants to make it right. Herein is what a repentant man does. See, what can I do to repay you for the debt that I owe you? See, I stole a blessing from you. Isn't that what Jacob stole from Esau? I stole a blessing from you, so let me restore that blessing to you. That's what he's saying. That's why the word blessing is there. I stole a blessing from you. Let me restore that blessing to you. Do we understand that sin and forgiveness... Sin and forgiveness, these terms are often in the Bible used in monet, as monetary terms. So, for example, forgive us our debts. That's monetary language. As we also forgive our debtors. Why is it monetary language? Because when I sin against somebody, I incur a debt in some way to them. It's a relational debt, but it's a debt nonetheless. I have harmed them. And when they forgive me, when they forgive me, what they're doing is they're absorbing that debt and not making me pay it. So th this is what it looks like. I confess that I've sinned against you in this way. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to repay you? I will forgive you. Okay, now here's what forgiveness doesn't look like. Five minutes later. Now, I need to get a pound of flesh from you in some way. A week later. Let me get another pound of flesh from you in some way. I've got to, see, forgiveness is I don't make them pay the debt. I absorb the debt myself, the debt they've incurred. So if I have a loan with a bank, and I, I owe that bank a debt, don't I? If the bank forgives my loan, then the bank absorbs the cost of my debt they suffer the loss, 
and I'm forgiven and released from having pay it. The bank doesn't come back two years later and say, you still owe us. Jacob understands that he spent years sinning against his brother. He knows he owes him a debt, and he wants to pay restitution. His brother Esau could, at this point, wonder if he's sincere, couldn't he? Why? I mean, Jacob has taken advantage of Esau not just once, but twice. So why should I trust this guy? For years, he has deceived me and taken advantage of me and played me like a fool. Why would I, in any way, shape, or form, trust his sincerity? He's not really repented for 20 years. Do you guys understand that? His sin has gone for over two decades against Esau without repentance. He potentially lined up his family in such a way that he's protecting his family from Esau. Here comes Esau, Jacob may be protecting his family from him. He'll later tell Esau he's not going to go with him to Edom. And he doesn't need any of Esau's men to protect him. For all, Jacob knows, or sorry, for all Esau knows, Jacob could just be feigning repentance. But how does Esau respond? This leads to our second point, the gracious and merciful God. Now, that title might sound strange to you because I'm asking, how does Esau respond? And then I'm saying the gracious and merciful God, and I'll get to that in a minute. But look at Genesis 33, 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is a remarkable text. It's just a remarkable text. He runs to Jacob, embraces him, casts his his arms around him. This is the kind of embrace where you basically cast the whole weight of your person on the other person. This is what Esau does. Kisses him and weeps. Esau's gracious and merciful reply here is stunning. It's just stunning. Esau is happy to pay the debt that Jacob has incurred himself. He does not want to make Jacob pay it. Look look at verse 8 and 9 again. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor or grace in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau does not desire a pound of flesh. He desires reconciliation with his brother. His brothers come home repentant, and he longs to reconcile with him. Esau even offers to bring him to his home and protect him. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. I'm going to go ahead of you with my, if you will, army, and I'm going to protect you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. In other words, okay, if you can't keep up with our pace, at least let me leave some of my soldiers behind to protect you. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that, returned that day on his way to Seir. Now Jacob will go to Succoth, 
and built a, a house, built himself a house of booths, which is what that town name means. Um, Jacob has been called to go to the promised land, not to Edom, and so that's where he's going to go, because God has commanded to go to the promised land, not to Eden. Edom. We'll come back to that next week. But Esau's graciousness here is stunning and overwhelming. And this is clearly the Lord's doing. And that's why I said, um, really, if I want to come back to the question, why did I label the point, the gracious and merciful God? Why didn't I label the point the gracious and merciful man? Because Esau certainly appears to be the gracious and merciful man, doesn't he? So why not label it that? Because Jacob tells us how to interpret Esau's actions. Look at Genesis 33.10. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor or grace in your sight, then accept my present from my hand For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. If you remember the immediately preceding passage, Jacob wrestled with God, this God-man. And in that passage, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, and yet he delivered my life. He spared me. And now he sees Esau as Esau comes to him and graciously, mercifully forgives him. And he says, seeing you, Esau, is like seeing God face to face. I'm seeing the face of God. Because God, when I saw him face to face and he delivered me, he told me, your will now be called Israel. Which means God fights for you. And clearly, in seeing you and the grace you're showing me, God has fought for me. God has overcome, if you will, my sin in your heart with grace toward me. God has overcome my enemy for me. This is the work of the Lord. As the Lord promised to Jacob he would do, so he has done. Now look at Genesis 33, 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. Do you hear that? Who does he say has dealt graciously with him? God has dealt graciously with me in all of these things. This is a summary of Jacob's life, by the way. God has dealt graciously with me. Including this scene. And because I have enough, thus he urged him, And he took it. Esau's acceptance of the gift is a recognition that Jacob's repentance has been met with grace. This language of acceptance, by the way, where Esau accepts it, is the same language used in Leviticus when God accepts the sacrificial offerings of his people. Leviticus 1.4, I could go on. The point is not that God's people have bought his grace with their gifts. The point is that they've received his grace. And they see that God gave it to them freely as sinners, and the Lord receives their repentance. A repentance, by the way, not that precedes God's grace, but a repentance that's an effect of God's grace. So the Lord grants us repentance. Jacob is not buying goodwill or grace. Jacob already has it. You hear what he's saying? Since you've shown grace to me, take my gift. This is the picture of a man who's responding to the grace of God with thanksgiving. 
with acts of service born out of having received such marvelous grace. Now, I want to carry this a step further. Here's what I'm arguing. Jesus treats Esau here as being a type of our Father in heaven. This pagan man. Look again at Genesis 33, 4, and then I want to show you what I'm talking about. But Esau ran to meet him. His brother, the sinful, deceptive brother who stole the blessings from the family and who ran off to a far country. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, keep your hand here and go to Luke 15. Luke 15. And we'll start in verse 11. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, Jesus, he's going to tell this parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This is a sinful man. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pig's aid, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now listen. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus is commenting on Genesis 33, 4. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. I hope you see this, friends. Jesus is telling this parable to speak about the marvelous grace of God. It is the grace of God given to all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law that we violated when we ran off into the far country of sin. And we deserve the condemnation of God there. There was one, our older brother, not getting into the rest of this parable, our older brother, namely Jesus, who kept the law perfectly in our place and then who went and paid the penalty for our sins rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we have life. He did that because the Father 
loved us. And so he sent his son to die for us. And what's amazing about this is, in every one of these parables in Luke 15, you hear this refrain, that heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. God joyfully receives you, sinner. Not reluctantly. Think about that. You have rebelled against God. You know your darkest thoughts and deeds. You know them. I don't think probably anybody really knows the darkness of your thoughts and deeds. And there is an extent to which you don't know them. The heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? Only the Spirit of God knows the heart of man, ultimately. You know your selfishness and deceit. Yet the Lord not only forgives repentant sinners, in other words, absorbs the cost of your debt for you in Christ at the cross, he runs to you and rejoices over receiving you back to himself. Have you thought about that? Do you meditate upon that? It's not that God begrudgingly accepts you, it's that he joyfully receives you. He runs to you, embraces you, throws his arms around your neck, kisses you and weeps with joy. When the Father in love gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord for you, that was the Father as he came looking for you. When he poured out his Spirit at Pentecost so that he could send his ministers to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, that was the Father running after lost sinners to save them. Do we understand that? He sought sinners like us as we ran from him and hid from him and obfuscated and justified and lied about our sin. It's a stunning picture of marvelous and really incomprehensible grace. I can't even wrap my mind around the grace of God in this. I can barely get a hold of the hem of the robe of the garment of his grace. And what does Jacob do with that grace? See, that's what Jacob is experiencing, that sort of grace from the Lord via his brother Esau. And what does he do with it? He gratefully gives of himself. He worships the Lord. So go back to Genesis 33. Back to Genesis 33. And look at verse 18. This is kind of a, a, one of these transition passages that takes you from one passage to the next. But I want to look at this briefly We'll actually come back to it next week as we lead into the next text. And Jacob came safely, Genesis 33, 18. And Jacob came safely or peacefully to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan on his way from Padam, Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pinched his tent. By the way, so did Abraham buy land and this comes into something we'll talk about somewhat next week. There he erected an altar and called it what? God, the God of Israel. God, the God who fights for us. 
He comes to the land just like Abraham came to the land, as he vowed he would. He buys property, and he does what Abraham did. He sets up a pillar and worships God, who's fought for him. He's now in the land with his offspring, dwelling with and worshiping the Lord. It's a remarkable picture of redemption, of reconciliation, of God keeping his covenant promises. Here is now the grandson of Abraham with his children in the land promised to Abraham with many offspring, reconciled to his brother by the grace of God, and doing what? Worshiping. God is with him. Now I want to come to our final point, three applications for the Christian, three applications for the Christian. You probably pick up already what these applications might be. Because if you're paying any attention at all, if you haven't checked out and used this time as a, as a nice nap, you, you probably are cognizant enough to know what the applications might be. While this text is recording the historic acts of God in the history of Israel, as the Lord progressively is revealing to us the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, our Savior, we're also being taught by the Holy Spirit from this text. It isn't just for Israel as they come out of Egypt and the Exodus. It is superintended by the Holy Spirit from the pen of Moses for you and for me, for Christ's church in every age. And there's much here that instructs us on how we ought to live as Christians. We see in this story the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. We see repentance and forgiveness. And as Christians, we are people who are to walk in repentance, to pursue peace. That's how we are marked out, who seek reconciliation, who are eager to forgive. So I want to give three quick applications. First, we need to keep short accounts. We need to keep short accounts. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're offering your, guilt at, or excuse me, your gift at the altar, in other words, you're coming for worship to lay down your gift at the altar for worship, that is the single most important act in the life of Christ's people, to come for worship where God dwells. If you're, come, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, while coming to worship, remember that your brother has something against you. You've sinned against your brother. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. It's stunning. That's stunning. You're going to give up what is an act that is the most important act in the life of a follower of the Lord coming for worship. You're going to leave your gift there and you're going to go. For what reason? First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Think of the importance of reconciliation here. It's so important, reconciliation is so important that you stop an act of solemn worship to attend to reconciliation. The offering of a, man, of a man matters not if the Lord does not have your heart. You come to worship and offer whatever you want, but if the Lord does not have your heart, then you need to repent of your sin. And if your brother has something against you, then you better repent and go and confess it and make it right. And if you're not willing as, an offender, as the offender to approach the one against whom you've sinned, then your heart's not in the right place. That's what Jesus is saying. 
You're still fearing man more than you fear the Lord. You need to be ready to confess your sin and repent quickly with all haste. Now, I've been told this, like when I say keep short accounts, I've been told, well, you know, time heals all wounds. Nope. That is not true. Time does not heal all wounds. Time can also cause you to grow bitter. The question is not how much time passes, but what kind of soil the seed of that sin is growing in. If your heart is hard, then that seed will produce thorns and thistles. And if your heart is softened by the gospel, then that soil will produce the good fruit of grace, repentance, love, kindness, readiness to forgive. But time is not some kind of magic bullet that solves all problems. We need to keep short accounts. We need to repent without reserve. Did you hear that? Repent without reserve. So that's the second application. I want you to think about Jacob's repentance here. This is a scary day for him. Jacob knows how he sinned against Esau. He knows Esau hates him for it, and yet he voluntarily comes to Esau in humble repentance. He comes before Esau bowing seven times. He then offers Esau restitution. He knows he's stolen from his brother Esau. He took the blessing from Esau, so he wants to restore the blessing to Esau. This is repentance. Saints, we need to repent without reserve. In other words, we need to hold nothing back in our admission of wrongdoing. We need to show complete humility. When we repent, we take the guilt of our offense. We do not obfuscate. We do not make excuses. We do not um, blame shift. Well, honey, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't done this. Is that right? No, here's what's right. I wouldn't have done that if my heart wasn't sinful. No one causes you to sin. Do you understand that? People might provoke you. They might make it really tempting to sin, but no one causes it except your own heart. Your own heart. So you don't blame shift. You don't obfuscate. You don't turn everything into accidents. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did this horrible thing against you. Sorry? What does that mean? Like, sorry, I tripped over the edge of the couch. I, I, I'm sorry that I knocked over your table. That's sorry. It's an accident. Here's, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I sinned against you in this way. Not, well, you know, I was cranky and tired. It's not really my fault. I was this, I was that. We go on the list of ways to obfuscate, to, to pull away, and we all do it, to, to find ways to pad that sin so we don't have to just come out and say, that came right out of the recesses of my wicked heart. Will you forgive me? It's my spouse's fault. It's my children's fault. It's my parents' fault. Whoever's fault it is, it's their fault. I didn't, you know, it's the, the booze's fault. It's this, it's whatever. No one puts sin into your heart. Sin comes out of your heart. We need to be marked as those who take responsibility for our own sin. Third application, we need to be ready to forgive. We need to be ready to forgive. The Lord has done a work in Esau that makes him ready to forgive. 
he runs to Jacob and throws his arms around him and kisses him and weeps. Saints, that's how we ought to be. We need to be quick to forgive. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now listen to this. This is why I'm talking about keep short accounts earlier. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You want to know how spiritual warfare happens? Your unwillingness to forgive. You're holding on to anger and bitterness. Spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 2, when the sinning brothers were coming back to be restored, Paul actually warns them there not to give into the schemes of the devil again. Because if you don't forgive him, he'll be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In other words, you talk about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare shows up when God's people act nothing like God. But like the devil, so we're small-hearted and unforgiving and bitter. The old fallen man, that's what Paul goes on to say. The old fallen man's bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, the old fallen man is small-hearted and angry and unforgiving. He lives for this world. He has no hope of the return of Christ. Thus, he always feels the need to protect himself. But the new man has Christ as his redeemer and his reward. He knows Christ will return and vindicate him. Thus, there is no need to fear man, even the man who's already offended him. The new man knows he's been forgiven an infinite debt, and so he's ready to extend a small taste of that unfathomable grace to others. I want to conclude really at this passage. Look with me at Matthew 18, Matthew 18, and we'll wrap it up passage about forgiveness. Passage about forgiveness, by the way, that follows the passage on church discipline and comes right before a passage on marriage and divorce. Interesting location for a passage. But let's, let's look there at verse, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that him being Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? See, Peter's going for a number of completeness. Many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or it's, it's um, 77 times or 70 times seven. It's, it's outrageously gracious is what he's saying. More than you're really able to number. His point isn't if you get to 78, depending on how you translate this, or to 491, um, that you stop now. Okay, it's been too many. It's just without number. Like God forgives you. Because remember, it's 77s from the prophecy of Daniel to the return of Christ where God forgives you. Like God forgives you, you forgive other people. How many times does God forgive you? Does he run out of forgiveness for you? I hope not. Goes on. Listen to the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So you understand in this kingdom, God is the king. Okay, we understand that. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this is, a talent is 20 years wage for the average laborer. So you imagine 20 years wages times 10,000. 
You don't even have to do the math. You understand that's more than you can pay. 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the master of the servant paid the debt instead. But when the same servant went out, verse 28, when the same servant who just was forgiven an infinite amount of debt, same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. hundred denarii. That's a that's hundred days wages. So about a, about a third of the year wages. And seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Saints, the Lord has forgiven us an infinite debt at, great, at the greatest cost to himself, his son. God's grace has been poured out on us abundantly and the Christian is the man who's been affected in his heart by that grace such that he's always the man standing at ready to forgive others. As those who've been forgiven much, we are called to be those who forgive much. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in us such that we would have some small understanding of the magnitude of the grace that's been shown to us in Christ. And that we would then likewise stand at the ready to forgive others when they repent. We pray that we would be a repentant people, a people who tell the truth about our sin and seek forgiveness, who keep short accounts And Father, that we would be a people who are always rejoicing in the opportunity to forgive the repentant. Cause us to be large-hearted because of the grace of God shown to us so that we might show that grace to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.